This episode of Tuna on Toast is brought to you by Hammer Toyota here in Southern California. I appreciate when you slide into my DMs on Instagram, Ted Stryker, and you ask me questions about Hammer. Uh, Stryker, can you hook me up? What is Johnny's number? Of course, you supporting the company that supports me, that means everything. And as always, I'm not saying go the second and sell your car or go buy or lease a car, but when it's time, keep these guys in mind because they're awesome and they'll treat you like a rock star. And to get the ball rolling, check out H-A-M-E-R, HammerToyota.com. Your name is Stryker? Yes, it is. That's fire. <laughs> wow. I love sandwiches. It's called tuna on toast. I, I, I spit. I don't know what I'm doing. I love music and I love those that create it. Stryker's here. Tuna on toast. Yes. Tuna on toast. Yeah, welcome to another episode of Tuna on Toast. I am Ted Stryker, and holy mackerel, today's episode is a good one. Mike drove over on a Sunday. It was a beautiful day. I waited for him out on the porch area. I'm like, Mike, it's me. I was waving exactly like Forrest Guy. Hey, Michael, right here. Then he parked, and it's a great episode. First, though, uh, I'm very easy to find out in the world. Ted Stryker, DM anytime on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter, on TikTok. Also, Tuna on Toast, you can find everywhere. You can watch all of these episodes on YouTube. Tuna on Toast with Stryker. We kicked off Tuna on Toast way back in October, the first Tuesday of October. Tom Morello was the first guest, and then second guest was Tom DeLong. Then I think we went Phineas, Mike Shinoda, M. Shadows was in there, Brett Gerwitz, but week after week after week, uh, I appreciate you guys checking out the show. And if this is your very, very first episode, there are plenty to go back and listen to. I mean, many of the weeks I put out two episodes a week. There's a lot. I mean, so much musical history over all these episodes. And it hasn't just been bands or artists that have been around for 15, 20 years. We've had some new artists on the show as well. In fact, the Aqua Dolls were a guest one week and just announced today Today, I didn't know this when Mike was at the house, Mike Einzinger. The Aqua Dolls will be opening up for the Incubus summer tour. Sublime with Rome, the Aqua Dolls, and Incubus. All right. I wasn't there necessarily the very, very first day for Incubus, but I was at some of those shows very early. And they created an energy at the Troubadour and the Roxy and the different house parties they played at that was different from other bands trying to make it at that time. Uh, we get into lots of Incubus history, uh, also stuff in the present, and the companies Mike has started, and his time at Harvard, and how he almost went to USC. We cover a lot of ground, and again, thank you so much for supporting Tuna on toast. It's so appreciated. So let's get to it. Without any further ado, please welcome to the Tuna on Toast studio, a.k.a. my second bedroom, Mikey Einziger. All right, here we go. Careful with your feet down here. And I'm right here. All right. Oh, my nanny, by the way, was so excited that I was coming to talk to you. No way. Yeah, she was like, I've been listening to Stryker my whole life. I was serious? like, I'm going to talk to him right now. She was like, that's crazy. No way. Yeah, it's just funny. I wasn't expecting her. She was like, <gasps> she got all like starstruck that Come I was coming on. to talk to you. Yeah, I swear. <laughs> it's crazy. Yeah. Maybe she's confusing me with Ryan No, Seacrest. dude. Okay. She's an LA local, man. Oh, she is? Yeah, she grew up in Canoga Park, man. Oh, okay. She's been listening to K-Rock her whole life. Wow. Her name's Genesis. Genesis. All right, Genesis. Thank you, Genesis. Yeah, she'll be stoked. All right, let's officially start this thing in three, two, one. Over here, Mike. Michael. <laughs> Over here. Mikey! Great to be with you, Stryker. It is great to be with you as well. Now, for those of you watching, we've already been conversing for like 15 minutes. And every two minutes, I'm like, no, quit talking. We got to save this for the cameras. Yeah, yeah. We, we, we've always had interesting conversations, haven't we? Yes. Mikey just revealed to me just before we started... You had never seen Curb Your Enthusiasm until the pandemic started. I'd never like really watched an episode. I mean, I was aware of the show and like sort of the general humor of it, but hadn't really like really given it like the proper 
viewing that it the respect if yes. you will that it deserves because it truly deserves a lot of respect so you love it it it's like being inside of my own brain oh <laughs> so you're very neurotic at times neurotic neurotic jewish people from the valley <laughs> i think there's a special place you know, like, cause my dad, it's funny, like my dad and his buddies, like they've been talking about, they just call it curb. Oh yeah. Curb. Right. You know, it's just like, Oh now got it. <laughs> I can't even believe like, yes. There's a few things that I'm jealous of, but I could easily incorporate into my life that happens on that show. Number one, the amount of golf they play. A lot of golf. Number two, how many lunches they go to where the weather is absolutely perfect outside and they have like great bread baskets and iced teas and seven ups and all that. It's amazing. It really is incredible. <laughs> the The amount of uh, the lengths that he goes to, to avoid going to parties. Yes. You know, the, the big goodbye, <laughs> the, the accidental text on purpose. Right. So, I mean, these things are like, man, how did I just only discover this recently? It's like insane. Okay. Other than Larry David. <laughs> Who's your favorite on the show? And did it change over the seasons as you binged watched it? Um, I mean, it's such a solid cast, like, and, and it stayed so consistent the whole time. So, um, but you know, Larry David is such a big personality. Like yeah. if I saw him, <laughs> I'd be super starstruck. Like I, I'd probably like, and there aren't that many people that I would be like that, but for I would just be like, oh my God, like, what the hell is he thinking? Like, his compl the complexities in his mind are, like, pretty astounding. So, I have an idea for you. Um, when you guys were making videos for, say, Privilege and Pardon Me, and uh, oh, it costs a lot of money to make videos. <laughs> it sure did. It's not as much these <laughs> days, correct? Um, no, technology has changed everything. Well, let's use the budget you had to get Larry David... Larry, what's your rate? Yeah. We're Incubus, and you're going to star in our video and maybe lip sync a new song that's not released Cameo, yet. maybe it's like, is he on Cameo yeah. or something like that? <laughs> you know, pay a few bucks, you know, get a little <laughs> message or something. That would be awesome. No, he's, 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 yeah, extraordinary. So we're sitting here on a Sunday. It's the middle of the day. This is the first Tune on Toast episode I've done on a weekend. and I'm privileged. Yeah. It's always a very relaxed feel, but today just felt like it felt very Larry David curb. Like I woke up and I was like, I put, just put on a little sweatshirt. <laughs> I was standing outside waiting for you to play a little golf. <laughs> yeah, we should do that. <laughs> I almost saw you come close to hitting a bicyclist with your car. Did you see that? Um, I might've been aware <laughs> of something like that, but you know, Hey, no, the, those, those bike riders are they were coming down the hill behind me yes, and they were like going faster than me right. half the time. And I was just kind of like, I don't, and there were two of them. So yes. one was like on one side and one was on the other. And I was like, uh, <laughs> I kind of don't know what to do right now. So it was a very, very curb your enthusiasm very type of much. moment. So when I got to the stop sign down here, I just stopped and was like, you yeah. guys do what you want. And they kind of just, yeah. Um, also it's just about March 1st and we're just a couple weeks away from incubus going on the road and you're doing some shows. Yeah. Um, not that you need to practice, but have you guys? No, we, we do need to practice. Okay. Like it's kind of crazy. Like, you know, like I'm 45 now, like it feels different to like play concerts at age 45 than it did at 25. <laughs> the <laughs> physical part or the mental part? <laughs> Probably both, but the physical part as well. Really? Like it's just, everybody's like, Everybody's got like a bad knee and a messed up wrist and a bad shoulder or something. And it's like, it's not, it's like, it used to be like just effortless for all of, all of us. And now we're kind of like, Oh, we gotta, we kind of got to work on this a little bit. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. That's for sure. But so have you had any practice then? Before? Yeah. yeah. Oh, we've, okay. been, we've been practicing. And like, but how does that work for guys like you who have so many songs and some of these songs, if we're going back to like Fungus Among Us or Science, and you maybe want to dig one up or two from that era, is your brain, can it just go, whoop, my hands go like this? Or how it's, does it work? It's really interesting that you ask that question because, you know, a lot of, especially the older that I get, I go back and have to sort of like relearn um, certain songs. And um, like, I realized that a lot of my playing is like a lot more technical than I ever like 
sort of realized before. So I'm having to kind of like relearn how to play parts that I wrote when I was like, you know, 19, 20 years old. Or I just play them in a way that's like super difficult. Like maybe it could be easier, but I just played it in a really difficult way. Um, but then this muscle memory thing starts kicking in after I like, I'll go through it a few times. Like I've, and it'll feel like I'm like, Oh my God, I've never even, it's like, I've never even played it before. And then like a few times in, it's like, Oh yeah, that's where my finger used to go. That's how it, that's how you do it. And then it just like something kicks in. And it's so, it's so interesting. Like, like there are even songs where I hear them, um, you know, obviously some, many of our songs, um, sort of the, the more, um, identifiable, recognizable Incubus songs, the ones that people really know, like, you know, we've played those so many times that like, that's like whatever, but some of the like, you know, sort of deeper cuts, it's like, I hear them back and I'm like, it's almost like I'm hearing them for the first time. I'm like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. We wrote that. That's crazy. Like, and, and then playing it is the same way too. It's like, I have to acclimate it's not just like instant recall like it used to be when I was younger. So, yeah, it's just so interesting. You hinted at something a couple times, and I want to just do a somewhat deep dive into it. When you listen to songs that you guys wrote when you were somewhere between, let's just say, 19 to 23 years old. And that was science. You, and, and here you are in your 40s. You are surprised by how good some of the songs are now, technically looking back. Um, and I'm not saying, oh, yeah, I'm yeah, or anything yeah, like that. Yeah, like, like, just to give you an example, um, like, you know, Brandon sang a lot of things in, like, a register that's probably really, really, really difficult to do. Mm. And now it's like, oh, shit, like, <laughs> how are we going to do this? But, you know, like, he, he, like, trains, like, full on, like, really, like, works really hard at it. And it was always, like, really effortless for me. But now I'm like, damn, I got to, I got to. I gotta get, I gotta step it up a little bit because it's right. it, it it's funny like what just comes naturally to you as a twenty year old versus you know like when you're in your forties and after like they say the warranty expires at age forty so it's, <laughs> no 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 don't say that don't say that <laughs> yeah it's a it, it's it's just a trip you know like doing this for such a long period of time and you know here we are in twenty twenty two you know playing concerts and I mean to we, a lot of people to very yeah. big audiences man it's pretty crazy it's so exciting and it's it's always feels good for someone like me who loved your band or a band from early on but you guys in particular and you see him at the Roxy or something and like yep. hey a lot of people know these songs and here we are all these years later and those people have grown up and sometimes they have kids and they want to go. And then sometimes there's like a 20 year old who hears pardon me on the radio or on a streaming service. And then they do a deep dive and they're like, Whoa, these guys are unbelievable. Um, did this career go up until this point, how you thought it would? No, none of this was how I thought it would go. Um, you know, I mean, it was all, I mean, I guess it was continually surprising and for us, you know, having uh, kind of achieved all this success at a pretty young age, um, I mean, we were just doing what sort of came natural to us. It wasn't, I don't think there was ever this expectation that we were going to be successful. It was more just like, this is really fun. Let's keep doing it and doing more of it. And, you know, writing songs was really fun and like, okay, well, let's just keep doing that. And people seem to like it. You know, it, that's really what it felt like. Um, but there was also this element of, um, I, I guess it all felt pretty logical too. Like in the really early days when, you know, when we were high school kids in, in the Valley, um, you know, in Calabasas and all the surrounding kind of areas where people had nothing to do at the time, you know, right. this is the yeah. late, mid, mid nineties. Um, we gave all of these young people something to do on a Friday or Saturday night and somebody to root for who lived right in their own backyard. Yeah, it, 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 we definitely had like this kind of like crazy rabid following from the beginning, like even playing at people's parties in their backyards, um, like the, 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 the crowds would get crazy. And, wow. and it was interesting, too, because there were other bands that would play and they would come and there'd be like five people watching them. 
And then all of a sudden there'd be like 500 people when we played and then there'd be five people when whoever went on after us. And it was just crazy. There was like crowd surfing and people diving off of houses and roofs and roofs and jumping in the pool and lighting stuff on fire. It was like, <laughs> I mean, it was just, Amazing. it was just chaos. And, and it, like I said, like there was an aspect of it that seemed totally logical to me at the time. It's like, oh, if we just tell all these people about this show and we pass out these flyers, like people will buy the tickets and, and they'll show up and they showed up. They really showed up. Like, and I don't know if it's that we were like really good or something. Like, I don't think we were that good, but, <laughs> but people like, people bad. wanted to come and see us for whatever reason. And then when we graduated to like, you know, we used to play actually, I don't know if you recall, do you remember Mancini's? It was a little tiny, tiny club in the, in off Roscoe in the okay. Valley. All right. And it was kind of not in the greatest area, you know, like sometimes people would get shot or stabbed or whatever. And then they, they closed it. Um, and then there was also this place, the country club. And it was also in the Valley, same sort of thing. Like, and once we like were able to start playing shows at these places, we played a few and then they got closed down. So that we, from there, we kind of graduated to like the whiskey and the Roxy and the Troubadour. Were you and, playing those shows in the Valley because you lived 15 minutes away and to get to the Roxy and those sort of places, it's 40 minutes from Calabasas. That's right. That's right. Mancini's in the Valley was like a place where they had these sort of underground like punk shows. Oh, okay. Not that we were a punk band, but like it was a place where like young bands and like, like, you know, who played there a lot was uh, the Skeletons. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. And like, they'd have like, you know, guys from Fishbone and other bands up there playing with them. Um, it was just like this little, like maybe 150 person little club, but it was like, oh, this, that's how this works. You play in these little places. Like we just, we were learning as we were going. And then. Who um, was setting up your equipment? You guys us, were doing it? We did everything. We was were, there, were there sound checks and like, oh, we got to turn that up and this lower? There was a sound check, you know, but it was, I mean, we were just at the mercy of whoever was there doing it. And you were 17 at the time or were you 16, past, 16, 16 years 16. old? We could barely Holy drive. Mackerel. We were, we had just gotten our, our driver's licenses. We were just Brandon got his driver's license first. So I might've even been 15 at some point during some of those. I can't remember exactly. So was he driving you guys for a little while? He was like the only one who had his license. He got his, he got his license first. He was the oldest of us. So. Wow. And um, so there were a few months and then Jose, I think came second, you know, and then the rest of us followed. But um, it was a, uh, it was, it was a trip really looking back on all of it. It's like, so many things had to line up in order to make all this stuff happen, you Absolutely. know? And it's like, like I said, so much of it seemed logical at the time, but now like I kind of can't even believe it. Um, I, I'm curious about your folks or mom or dad, or did they ever say to you guys, ah, the band is great, but listen, you're going to finish high school in a year. And all the time. They did <laughs> all the time. I mean, my dad's a doctor, you know, like he, he's retiring ish. I don't know. Nah, he, my dad, he, you know, he'll, he'll work, th he'll work his whole life. That's just his, who he is. But, um, you know, I think he saw music as cute, you know, oh, right. like, but really wanted me to, to, to go to college, really wanted me to kind of take the, what he, I, I think in his mind was sort of the quickest route from point A to point B. Um, he just don't want, you know, he just cared about me. He just didn't want me to struggle. Right, but also to, I mean, his way of thinking, how is it possible my son and his idiot friends. Yeah, exactly. From Calabasas, where the Red Robin is right there. Yep. How are they going to make? There's no chance. There's no way. There's no way. I mean, we 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 had countless people tell us like, oh, you know, this business is so hard. But that's also why, um, like, you just have to not give a fuck. Like, that's really what it is. Like, in whatever you do, you really mm. like courage, like raw, just bravery will get you very far. If you're, is that if, maybe what led you to starting or being part of Mix Halo is like, I'm going to take a risk here and take a jump. And it, it was the same sort of curiosity that um, was kind of the the um, the genesis of starting a band. It's the same. It's mm. the same exact thing, which is like, OK, well, I want to know how music works. So in order to learn how music works, I had to start a band to figure that out. And with Mix Halo, it's a, you know, it's a networking technology company. And there was sort of a question that I wanted to answer about whether or not you could stream an audio signal to somebody's phone fast enough to where they could hear it 
and watch a concert or a sporting event or something like that and be able to hear everything in real time? In your ears, in real time, to hear the sound that is that the band is hearing in their ears. That's what makes Halo is. It unlocks the basically the the sound board, like the the mixing board. It unlocks it for anybody. um, And you can just basically open an app and you're right, you're in. Like and, and and so it's it's pretty transformative. Where like if you're in a nosebleed section of a of a stadium, like you don't have to struggle to hear anything. If somebody's talking into a microphone, you can hear them like they're talking to you. They could whisper your name, and you could hear them with no problem. And it's it it, it unlocks something interesting. Um, but in order to answer that question, I had to start a networking technology company to figure it out. And oh. now the company's you know growing like crazy, and it's. Um, it's a, it's Congratulations a, so, on that. Jumping you. into the technology space and having so much success with this. And I I remember you telling me about it years ago. Yeah. And just like with a lot of tech, and I'm not saying with everybody, but I was like, well, how is this going to work? Which I should have been asking. I should have just yeah. said, okay, let me put these in. Let me press that. <gasps> oh, my God. This sounds so good, Mike. This is incredible. Yeah, it's pretty, uh, it, it's pretty crazy. And it's hard to put into words. Um, what it like sort of what the experience is like, but I think at some point everybody will figure it out. And it's like the, the easiest way to describe it is all of us artists, while we're performing concerts on stage, we're all wearing headphones, maybe like 99% of us. Um, 20 years ago, um, when we first started wearing headphones, uh, people didn't really do that yet. And everyone was like, oh, it's so weird. And like, I can't get into the show. It's going to change everything. And it's like, well, here we are 20 years later. And who's wearing headphones? Every single artist that's on stage. And there's a learning curve with it. Um, And I just think like eventually over time, it's, it's, it's not like a choice. Like you have to decide one or the other. Just everybody has headphones anyway. And it's like something that you can access. And I, I like, you know, if I was... 5,000 feet away from somebody shouting into a microphone, I'd probably prefer listening in headphones so I could hear everything. That's just me. Absolutely, absolutely. We're going to stick in this space for just a minute, then get back into band history and current stuff. And Versicolor, this is something that I've learned about recently that you and your wife started as a result of a skin condition with her. So now what is this particular space you've (laughs) you've taken a deep dive into? Yeah, this is... This is something that like no one would ever anticipate um, like me getting involved with. But um, basically, in a, in a nutshell, we've started a biopharmaceutical development company that's developing drugs to treat inflammatory skin diseases. And um, it's been really interesting. Um, my wife got basically what you could consider a pigmentation disorder on her back, which means it affected her skin color. And she got really sort of curious um, because it's a really harmless condition that goes away. Um, and when it goes away, your skin goes back to normal. Okay. And she was just kind of like, well, what is this thing that happens to your skin that changes the color of your skin or impacts the color of your skin um, and then goes away like it never happened and doesn't do any harm to you? And it turns out there's a, there's a microorganism um, that colonizes your microbiome. I'm going to get a little technical here. Um, But it causes certain changes to happen in your skin that are temporary. Um, But there are actually some things that it does that are actually really good for your skin um, in certain ways. And this is how all pharmaceutical development works, actually, is like you sort of take things that, that nature makes and repurpose them. And we found that by utilizing some of their certain chemicals that are produced naturally in the microbiome and their purpose is to basically be an anti-inflammatory. So this organism that colonizes your skin, it starts growing in a certain way and then your skin starts producing all of these different chemicals to basically say, hey, like, don't get inflamed, don't cause, you know, itching or, you know, uh, all sorts of stuff. And so what we do is we we utilize those chemical compounds and repurpose them and they're very powerful anti-inflammatories. Wow. And when did this, so did this a company start for you during the pandemic when you had a little bit more time on your hands and you could do, wait a minute, you're not officially a scientist or anything, but I know you're a very, very smart guy. So 
what hats did you have to wear? Who did you bring in? How, like, this is what an undertaking. It kind of really just goes back to uh, the concept of, of being brave, really. Mm. Um, I have no permission to be doing any of these things. I, I didn't have any permission. I had to give myself permission to be a musician and start a band and do all that. And, you know, starting a networking technology company, starting a, a pharmaceutical company. These are all things that like you're, you're supposed to sort of like get a degree or, you know, get an education in before you do, but you better have people that you can be mentored by that, yes. that really, really know what they're talking about. Right. Cause that's, that's really sort of the key is um, finding the right mentorship is really important in whatever you do. Um, so I think that's kind of like part of the formula it has been, um, you know, like for example, with Mix Halo, you know, I was able to find the right uh, technical expertise, truly, like not just like, you know, some charlatan who, you know, kind of maybe knows a little bit about the space. Like we actually build something transformative that large tech companies have come to us and, and like kind of started snooping around and being like, Hey, what is this? Cause they don't believe it does what we say it does, but it does. Yeah. Um, and in terms of pharmaceutical development, you know, that's the sort of thing like, uh, you know, I'm on, I'm on these, these calls with, you know, all these different executives in the pharmaceutical <laughs> world. And like, they're like, Dr. Einziger, can you blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I'm like, that's so cute that you think I'm a doctor. That's great. I love it. You know, like, cause the vast majority of people that I talk to when I'm sort of in that world, they have no idea that I play in a band or anything. And the funniest thing is like, I started this company with my wife in 2016 I mean, it's it's a little bit of a misnomer to say that I started the company. We started doing our research. Like, I mean, we've been doing like just our, basically like trying to answer scientific questions for the last several years. And then commercializing technology is a whole sort of other animal. Um, and we're, in the, you know, we're kind of doing both simultaneously now. But, um, you know, I would come off stage in like, I'd, you know, in like, in like, Cape Town, South Africa, yeah. and jump on a call with a bunch of like, you know, pharmacologists that's and immunologists. Like I'd be all sweaty. Wow. So sorry guys, I just got off stage. And it's like, that's just my life, you know? Yeah. It's always been my life. Like, you know, back in 2008, when I went to college, it was like, all of a sudden I'm in a classroom, you know, studying the history of physics. And like, this is just the Wait, weird, hold on, hold this on, is just the on. weirdness this of my world. class at Santa Monica City College. Great. Great junior college. You went to Harvard yeah. back in 2008. The band took a very small, short hiatus. Um, did you apply to get in there? I did. You did? Actually, um, it's kind of a funny story. Um, Flea and I, we applied to USC together to go to music school. Okay. Together. It was like this thing that we were going to do. We were like, yeah, let's, you know, like, let's go like really learn about like, these things that we've been kind of doing our whole lives, but never really like studied academically up until that point. And so it was like a kind of a brotherhood type thing. Yes. And then, and then I was like, well, I'll just apply to Harvard and we'll just see, you know, but then I got in. Did you get into USC as well? Yeah, you did. Okay. Yeah. So you applied to Harvard. So did you have to write an essay or anything like that. Of course. Oh my God. Yeah. yeah. Um, it was, it was pretty intense. Like all of it. Um, going through that process, having just been playing rock concerts for like 20 years or whatever, however long I had been at that point. Um, but yeah, it was kind of a funny thing to kind of have to be like, all right, sorry, flea. Yes. <laughs> I'm out. But he went to USC and studied anyway. And so it was cool. He was doing that at the same time I was at Harvard. And so we were kind of like comparing notes and you know, it was fun. What was your biggest takeaway from your time going to school? Um, you know, my experience at Harvard was like really transformative because I wasn't there, um, you know, under, I guess, the kind of typical set of circumstances, which is really like, you know, like this is everything is riding on my whole career is riding on this. I, I was there to just genuinely learn. Um, I didn't even really know what I was doing. All I knew is that like and it's the same. I, I guess it's the same thing with like starting the band or starting these different companies. I didn't necessarily know what I was doing. I just knew that I wanted to be there and I wanted to be learning. And did you put the effort in while you were there? It was, yeah. Like I, I was, I was really um, a pretty hardcore student. In fact, like my friends, 
that were there, like we had kind of a little crew of, there are a bunch of LA kids that I ended up meeting okay. um, that are still to this day, like my really good friends wow. um, that uh, they were just like, you're insane. Like, like we're going to this party. Like, why don't you come? And I was like, that's like, they're like, it's going to be crazy. I was like, that's cute. Like, yeah. Go, uh, go. Hello, I played <laughs> to a 70,000 seat venues and had a jolly good time after those shows. You know, what was really funny though, is that I was at Harvard during um or like right around the time when um the social network came out so that was kind of interesting too to like kind of see it portrayed yeah as i was sort of experiencing it in real time and being like all right like how (laughs) how similar is this you know like and some parts of it were filmed there and other parts weren't and um it was interesting and you know and rashida who was in the movie too she's my friend also and she went to harvard also so it's kind of funny little without saying names is anyone that you met at Harvard, have they gone on to like, they are just doing something unbelievable in life right now? I would say most of them. Really? Yeah. That's that's one of the things that's that, that was so crazy about being there. And then, you know, um, like, I mean, a lot of the people that I met while I was there sort of like were somehow instrumental in helping me build things that I'm building now in some way, shape or form, whether it's, introducing me to, to somebody or, you know, like kind of just helping me conceive of some idea or framework for, you know, building things is, is wildly creative and also really difficult. Um, I think that's why I enjoy it. Um, the, just the people that I met, that's the biggest takeaway. Like I just met the most amazing people while I was there and like, you know, many of whom are still like really close friends of mine to this day. Cool, man. Yeah, it's, I feel so it's an amazing chatting with you, Mike. It's an amazing environment. It really is. It's like Disneyland for nerds. It, it, it's like if you're interested in something. And, and one of the things that I think gets lost on young people, you can't explain this to a young person. They, they, they can't. There's just no substitute. It's like professors love nothing more than to, to share wisdom about their field. And so um, I used to go and hang out with all my professors and just – and I was so interested in, in, you know, in quantum physics and, and um, sort of where uh, the quantum world kind of rubs up against philosophy. At some point, it really just becomes like, it's so weird. It, that's what I was so, um, I think, that's why I gravitated towards it. It, it, it becomes philosophy at a certain point. And um, I could just talk about it endlessly with my teachers. Right. And they, right. they, they were so like welcoming of a student to come in and start asking all these like deep questions, you know, but you know, the, the office hours would be like, you know, sometimes there'd be a lot of kids like, you know, trying to come in, but they were just trying to, trying to do their homework or whatever. Like they weren't, you know, they're under a different set of pressures, but man, like, like really having, I, I never had relationships with teachers like that, you know, with professors, so it just gave me a totally different appreciation for, you know, academic yeah. institutions in general and how much you can learn from, from people if you just ask. Makes sense. Take us back now. We're going back to music. Yep, let's do it. Between science and make yourself. Where were you professionally, you and the guys? Yep. Because there was buzz on Incubus here but i don't know if someone in chicago knew you guys like did you have a re- official big record deal at that point we did we were um we were signed to sony music through immortal and epic oh um, right we were right. label we were label mates with corn um and you know rage against the machine and pearl jam pontius no pontius oh, yeah. yeah okay and happy happy paul walters pa- yes. and paul pontius and yeah. then um at the time i want to say it was uh richard griffiths and there were a few other uh, other people and and steve rennie who was at 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 Epic, that's how we met him. Um, he was the general manager of the West Coast of Epic Records. So, um, you know, we we had a record deal. Um, Science was our first major label release. Um, obviously, there weren't really any commercial songs on that album, but we we tapped into something that was a little different. It was, I can't even put a finger on it, but, you know, we were touring like crazy, like with System of a Down, like we were label mates. They were on Columbia, we were on Epic, and the label figured out like, oh, well, we could just put you all together and probably save a bunch of money, <laughs> you know, like they could combine costs. And um, so were you guys friends with the bands that were from L.A. coming up at a similar time, like System, Linkin Park, Hoobastank? Uh, so we, we knew the 
the the guys from Hoobastank, I had kind of gr- like I knew Dan and Doug like yeah. from before. I didn't know the Lincoln Park guys until later. Um, I mean, later as in like, I don't know, like early 2000s or whatever. Um, I didn't know them. My, my younger brother knew them. Like he, he, he like went to summer school with one okay. of those guys. Um, and they're all like such sweet, sweet guys. Oh, yeah. Um, but not so much. Like we didn't really know too many of the local bands. Um, we kind of really just did our own thing. Um, there were a couple of other bands, like there was uh, this band Frontside from Temple City. They were like our, they were friends of ours and we would like do shows with them. And, um, you know, I really, I, I would, I would, it's so funny. It's just like such a crazy long, long, long ago, long, long, long ago. Um, I somehow convinced Paul Tillette to put us on some Golden Voice shows. Um, Paul Tillette, he started or created Coachella. Yeah. Yes. Like I met Paul in probably 94, 95. Okay. And, um, and, uh, there was another guy named Adam Seidel who worked for Golden Voice as well. And like, I was just relentless. <laughs> like I would show up at their office and be like, Hey, let me pass out some flyers for you. And they'd be like, cool. And they started actually like, like, you know, cause I would go pass flyers out for incubus shows anyway. So I'd kind of be like, Hey, like, I just sort of weaseled my way in there as a 16-year-old kid who had just got my driver's license. Wow. Um, they ended up putting us on a show with Sublime at the Palace. It was, it was the show that they where they filmed their, like, it was like a live performance. Wow. Live the perform- Palace was across the street from Capitol Records. Yeah. The Palace. Yes. To me, that was like Dodger Stadium. Right. At that time. It's a decent-sized venue. So you're on the bill with Sublime. Yeah. Okay, go on. We're like the first of like five bands or something like that. Um, and uh, yeah, it was just kind of crazy. I, I, I don't know how, like, you know, and he put us on some other shows as well. And we always did really well. So it was like we were kind of a welcome addition to any bill because we would bring an audience. They couldn't drink, but right. yeah, <laughs> they were all like 15 years, 16 years old. It was like a bunch of skater kids, you know, and some hippies and some heshers. And it was like a mixture of, of very, very interesting <laughs> group of people that would come out to an incubus show in the, in the mid nineties. Um, but then, um, you know, we got to this point where every place we played was just sold out. You know, like we would play at the whiskey or the troubadour. The yeah. troubadour really kind of became the troubadour and the in the Roxy actually. Like I met Nick Adler. Yeah. You know, yeah. Paul from the troubadour, Paul and Christine. Like they all like we just had like this little crew, and we'd kind of alternate between playing the whiskey, the Roxy, and the troubadour, and um, and we were just blowing them out, selling them out every time. And there would be a lot, huge line outside of people who couldn't get in. I I wish I could explain, but. That's just how it was. And, 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 I, and I remember specifically around that time, there's a lot, a lot of bands who could get their friends or classmates, whatever it is, family members to come to the first couple shows. After that, they're like, ah, I can't go anymore. But you guys were doing such an awesome job that your friend told another friend, told another friend, like, if you want to have a freaking good time, you got to come out to the Troubadour tonight because this is a band that needs to be on your radar. And that's how I remember it specifically for Incubus. There was a, a very specific thing that happened where it was no longer, like, people that we knew at the shows. Mm. I remember that. I remember, like, you know, it was like, okay, we don't know these people. Like, maybe I saw them at the last one, but I don't know them. You know, and that was interesting. And actually, the first time I ever signed something for somebody was at that Sublime show. Really? It was the very first time somebody, like, asked me for an autograph. It's pretty funny. What'd you sign? Um, Like, just a flyer okay. ticket. Yeah. You know, somebody had a ticket to the show. And yeah. It was, like, it was, and, and we were also playing other shows, like, around that time, too. So it was um, just a very funny thing to experience, you know? Like, like you're saying... You know, everybody can start a band and get, you know, their their family to invite some people and whatever. Yeah. But, like, it was very clearly not people that we knew show, that were showing up. What's the first Incubus song you heard on the radio? Was it Pardon Me? Was it Privilege? What radio station? K-Rock. The very first time we ever heard uh, Incubus on K-Rock was um, Pardon Me. I'll never forget it, too. It was, wow. like, it was very transformative because... At that time, too, like, 
media outlets were like everything was very focused. Like there were only like in 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 LA there was one radio station and probably half the country listened to it. You know, and it was like MTV and K Rock were kind of like the only game in town, really. And um, and so I remember, you know, someone told us like, hey, they're gonna play you guys on K Rock today, and it was like. We were, we were driving around in the valley. Um, like, we actually were playing golf at the the Van Nuys. I'm pointing like it's over there. That Van Nuys, like, little par three yes. golf course. Yeah. We were over there fucking around, no. like, dr- drinking and, like, you know. Right. And and we were, like, we were in the parking lot at that Van Nuys golf course place. Was it Jed the Fish then for the catch of the day? Was it, or was it, I, I was can't it remember when I played it? It was in the afternoon. I think it was, in the, it was in the afternoon. Okay. I don't remember specifically if it was Jed. Um, I, I just remember it was like, holy fucking shit. Like, this is like out of a movie. Like, this is crazy. And, um, and it was the album version of the song. Like, because we had, we had had all this like success with, um, in other parts of the country where people were playing the acoustic version of the right. song. But, I but that. people weren't really playing the electric, like the, the album version. Um, and, and it had, been released as a single like many months prior and like was kind of just not really didn't really like do anything as a as a single but then like as soon as as soon as k-rock played it like it set off like a crazy chain of events that like led to you know like what are some of the things that happened over the next six months that maybe wouldn't have happened if all the radio didn't start going on yeah um you know we um we got added to MTV. That was a big deal. Mm. Pardon me. Like we made a video for pardon me. It started getting played on MTV and I'll, I'll never forget it. Like it was like one week, you know, we sold 10,000 albums or something. The next week it was like 275,000. Holy albums. crap. Like it was just like, wow. And, and, but we'd been, you know, we'd really been building. Yes. So yes. like I said, it all felt logical to me at the time. Right. But now looking back on it, it's like, I, I don't know. Like, how that happened but it was crazy because it it really took off from there and just kept going like it kept going for many years because it was on that particular album before you made the next one privilege pardon me um stellar stellar oh my god and drive and drive and drive drive was the end of that album and that was that not the the biggest biggest song by far why because it crossed over to other formats yeah, I mean, it was, it was, it was on the you know the sort of like pop radio stations and all that. And, yeah, and um, who knew that an Incubus song that wasn't even your first single, maybe the fourth or fifth one, was going to cross over to these people like that? It all felt logical to me at the time. <laughs> I was like, yeah, you know, Stellar's going to come after Pardon Me, and then Drive's just going to be huge, and it f- fucking happened somehow. Like, like seriously, I thought that at the time. Like, I I thought that Drive was going to be this big song, and it somehow was um yeah it's crazy do you remember when you and the guys visited me at the radio station you brought your instruments and the studio one would think oh you're on k-rock you must have this giant thing it was smaller than this tuna on toast bedroom this is my house my bedroom and you guys were in the hallway and somehow the wires were in my board and you played a few songs. Yeah, I remember that. We were scattered all over the hallway. Yes. There were we we each had like a little funny like sort of station. Yeah. And we were all in like different rooms. And we somehow had to like figure we I mean, you know, I we could all we could all that. hear each other. I have that. Oh, on wow. CD. Wow. Yes, if you ever want to hear it. I do want to hear it. Okay. Stellar is so good. Because I remember Brandon was like, okay, one, two, three, four. And like Kilmore did something on the turntables. The turntables were actually, I think, in my room right in front of me. Yeah. And he was like, duh, 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 duh. it was, oh man. The funny thing is too, like in the earlier days when we were playing, you know, all these little tiny venues, like poor Kilmore would be like on the ground. <laughs> like we'd be on the stage and he'd be like off the side somewhere. Cause like the stage would be so small. Yeah. Like, and also he had like these, you know, these turntables and the needles would skip. So he'd be like, just put me down there. And then like, he'd be like with the audience. Wow. Oh my <laughs> it's God. just a, a different, a different, you know, a different time, a different world. Um, but yeah, that was really fun playing uh, in the hallways at K-Rock. It felt important to us too, because it was like, we grew, I grew up in LA listening to K-Rock. So it was like, you know, 
going and playing at like the forum or the Hollywood bowl, like all these places that I went to a million times as a young person to like, I mean, I went to the Hollywood bowl to see like fireworks when I was like four or five years old, you know, I went to the Greek theater to see the go-go's play when I was five. Wow. You know, like that was really, I think one of my first concerts. Yeah. and, And with all of these groups that I grew up listening to, you know, that was also like one of the weirdest parts about all of it was like, wow, all these bands that were like touring with and playing with a lot of them. I like grew up listening to that. Like who was the nicest of all the bands that just sticks out? Um, I mean, you know, like most, I mean, most of them are like, you know, the ones that are, the ones that are like real rock bands, you know, like they've seen so much shit in their careers. Like they're, they're, they're just cool. You know, um, I don't know, you know, like, like the guys from Rage Against the Machine are Mm. just like so chill and down to earth. I love those guys. Um, you know, the Foo Fighters, Dave Grohl's like such a nice dude. It's amazing. Actually the stamina that that guy has to like deal with what he deals with. I'm in awe of that. Like at this point in his life, he could just be chilling. Absolutely. He doesn't need to be making making movies movies and and all kinds of shit. Hosting this and then another new Foo Fighters album and then doing a tour that goes nonstop and still calls up radio stations and goes on podcasts and does the hot ones things. It's crazy, man. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's funny, like getting to know all these dudes over a long period of time because we, we all did the same shit for a very, very, very long time, you know? And, and at some point, like, you know, we're all like playing together, flying around together, whatever, you know? So there, there's kind of like, I think this appreciation that I just have as I get older for Mm. how unlikely all of it is to begin with, you know? Um, You know, I see a lot of, a lot of the guys from the band, those sort of bands, like, you know, I see them around all the time. Like we live in similar places and stuff like yeah. that. And um, it's just funny. It's funny. Do you ever see, have you ever seen Dave Grohl in the supermarket? I haven't seen Dave Grohl in the supermarket. <laughs> Fat Mike was here and he's like, I always see Dave Grohl in the supermarket. I've seen, I've seen, <laughs> I've run into Taylor and in places like that before, but I love that guy. He's, he's hilarious. Okay. So here we go. 1999. Make Yourself. 2001, that's when Morning View comes out. You record the album at that wonderful house in Malibu. And every time I'm driving by Zoom on PCH, I've said it to my wife 10,000 times, that's saying you miss Morning View. She's like, I know, shut up, you idiot. <laughs> Do, if I feel like you don't feel pressure. You're a very relaxed guy. But did you or the band feel some sort of like, oh, my God? We've got to somehow match what just happened over the last year and a half. You know, it makes perfect sense that that would feel what it, that would seem to be the case, but it just didn't feel that way at all to me at the time. At the time, it was like, oh, you know, look at this amazing place we get to make music in and we're just going to write the best album we ever wrote in the next you know, few months. And wow. that was it. That's just how it felt to me. And also knowing that, it was different that time because we had already, you know, sold a couple million albums or something like that at the time. And actually when we were at morning view, um, drive was really like the biggest that it ever was. So it was like this thing that kept sort of churning as we were making new music. So we knew that people were just going to be really excited to hear whatever it was that we, you know, the songs that we wrote. Um, and so I just thought it was cool. It didn't seem like to me, it didn't feel like, pressure it seemed like we had done what we wanted to do naturally and on our terms to get to oh, where we were amazing so it was like just keep doing what you're doing type of thing you know like i didn't feel at all like oh my god we have to deliver we have to do this or we have to do that to me we created sort of a dream scenario for ourselves right. now looking back on it i kind of can't believe what we pulled off then you go nice to know you and wish you were here those two singles still two of my top are you in songs and are you in Um, Wow. You know, it's funny because when I look back on it too, um, a lot of people were really concerned about it. Not us, but people around us. In what sort of way? Spending all this money to make an album not in a studio. We had to bring all the equipment in and rent this big house. We're a bunch of like 22-year-olds or three or whatever we were at the time. Yeah, It's like, who's going to trust a bunch of 23-year-old kids to actually like do that? But we did it. Um, you know, one of the things that was kind of important to me at the time was, um, 
you know, bringing in Scott Litt as a producer, you know, he, he kind of, I think, commanded the respect a lot of, of a lot of people in the, the music industry. Right. And so he was yes. kind of like, I was kind of like hiding behind Scott a little bit <laughs> like, Hey man, here's what we're going to do. Like you tell him it's going to be cool. Right. Um, you know, so there were people at the label that were like real concerned about it. Everyone wanted sort of the, the straightest route from point A to point B. Right. Yeah. Like that seems, but I, I just, you know, even certain members of the band were concerned about it. Wow. <laughs> exactly concerned about what? The songs you were making or the I way mean, you were doing it? I mean, is it going to sound great? It's not in a studio. Oh, like, wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Man, what do you remember? Just one memory that comes to mind while being in that house. Um, walking around in the house like at like, you know, four o'clock in the morning when everyone's just sleeping, just going, holy fuck, this is my life. <laughs> like I, I really had a lot of those moments, like, just like, wow, I can't believe that I'm here. And like, this is what we're doing. Like, how crazy is this? I mean, I, I, I appreciated it a lot. I, I didn't have the perspective that I do now, but I did appreciate it. You know, it's great, man. And then after that, a crow left to the murder comes out and yep. does amazing Light Grenades after that, which debuts at number one. You guys are just rolling like crazy. Are you having fun at that time? Do you recall? Like, holy crap, this is actually really fun. I mean, there, there, it was really fun. Um, I would say around the Light Grenades era is when, like, we, I think we were getting to an age where, at least for me, like, I was starting to kind of feel like, Am I just going to keep doing this over and over and over again? It was fun and I enjoyed it and I enjoyed the process of making music. But I think that's when I started to question um, for me personally, like, you know, is this, am I just going to do this for the rest of my life? Because it was, we had built up so much success and, um, you know, there was like anytime that happens, you know, naturally sort of, there are a lot of other people that are connected to you who are reliant on that success. And so I started to feel, I think a little bit during that time, like, like, you know, is this what I want to do in this manner? Like, it's this huge thing where like we focus all this time and energy and we like make this album and then it comes out and then we tour behind it for years and like, we're never at home. Um, you know, I'm not complaining about it right. in any way, but there yeah, are certain yeah, yeah. aspects of it that over a long period of time, you know, like I, I definitely like started like wondering like, okay, what's my life going to be like in the much longer term. And shortly after that was like, you know, when I went to college and all that, you know, so I started really just thinking about my future um, from just a pure sort of like happiness perspective. It's only been until maybe the last year or two with what you just said, I've been able to appreciate when artists talk about that because no one ever it's clear that everyone appreciates the success and is like, oh my God, what a life we're living. But to hear you say, wow, all these people are depending on us. We are in this cycle of going, going, going with these guys. We do this, we do this, do this. We run around. Now I'm getting exhausted. We've got to talk to the radio station in Nebraska, and then we've got to talk to Idiot Striker in LA, and then we've got to go <laughs> play this show here. And it's like, is it? do you think it's at all similar to an actor who's on a sitcom or a scripted show for eight, nine, ten years, and then they're like, there's some, there's another world out there. That's exactly right. You know, it's like any world that you exist in for a long period of time, decades, um, you know, there's a repetitive aspect of it that it doesn't matter how romantic it sounds to the outside world. Um, it just becomes repetitive at a certain point. Um, and that has nothing to do with, you know, I've, I've always been appreciative of the success and the opportunity, but sure. at the same time, um, I've always considered myself sort of a lifetime, you know, band member. Like it's something that I'll do for as long as I can in my whole life. But in order for me to be able to do that, I also have to be able to, to, um, feel fulfilled in other ways. Yes, and I think that I that's, that. I get that. Yeah. I think that's something that the whole band really like understands at this point. For each individual member, right? Absolutely. Okay, so then do you see yourselves every few years making five new songs, eight new songs, 20 new songs? 
I don't really know. It's, it's, you know, music making has to happen in a really natural way for us, or it's just, you know, I, I mean, I suppose it's that, I suppose that's probably true for any, any like real, there's so many, any real rock band, there's so many different types of artists and, you know, groups that are put together by other people and, you know, and songs that are written by others, but we do everything ourselves. Like, you know, when we play a show, like, you know, we don't like really get into wardrobe. We like are just who we are and we just play. Yeah. Like it's an honest expression of us. It always has been. So it's, if it's authentic to who we are, um, it has to happen naturally on its own. Um, I'm also acutely aware of the fact that, you know, we have this huge body of work, the, you know, all these songs that, that we've written, many of them a very long time ago, that are really important to people. You know, um, and we're so lucky for that. Like, that's just like the biggest privilege of all is to be able to have, you know, written music that like actually means something to people. Cause that's the hardest part is like actually connecting. Yeah. Um, right. and that's also something that I appreciate, um, in our peer group as well. Like the other artists, the other bands that we kind of came up with that are still like, you know, they're still like, you know, playing shows and like, you know, people care more about their music than they did even before. It's like it grows, you know, and I think that that music um, becomes the backdrop of our lives in these really interesting ways that I think just become stronger over time. Right, definitely. At, at least for me, you know, yes, yeah. and film is the same way. Um, you know, it really kind of like it, it's meaningful to people. And so now, like when we play shows and like I'm just, you know, hearing, you know, 30,000 people singing the lyrics to something. It's like, holy shit. Like we actually connected with these people. Yes. It's not just like, I'm just phoning it in right now. Like this actually means something to people. And, and not, it didn't mean, and it's not something that means something to people temporarily. It's year after year, after year, after year, after year, we hear the first few notes of many incubus songs and it takes us back to a place somewhere in our lives, but we're also to sell able to celebrate it right now. So yeah. I'm so happy that you guys are playing shows and uh, I'm so happy we're hanging out. Dan, we've been here like 53 minutes already. <laughs> Is, can we segue please into some true crime talk? Let's do it. Okay. So luckily this podcast tune on toast, we're, we're doing all right. But now that we're going to talk true crime, we may go to number one on the charts. <laughs> so, here we go. Elaine Park. Yeah. Uh, many of you guys watching know, but if you don't, the summary is this. Back in 2017, her car was found on Pacific Coast Highway, but she was not found. Correct. And she has not been found since then. Nobody has been arrested. And that's where we stand today. Back in 2017, both you and Neil Strauss were on the radio with me, like shortly after that happened, discussing this case. Yep. Since then... An unbelievably successful podcast called To Live and Die in L.A. that Neil hosts. And you're on it as well, right? Yeah. Um, we were documenting um, as we were going. And um, and a lot of that content was included in the podcast. Right. Um, so as we sit here today, where like where are we with this case? Are there suspects? Are we any closer? There's a huge reward for tips leading to the arrest of who is responsible? Yeah, it, it, it's kind of a complicated question. I okay. mean, the, the the podcast spells it out, I think, really well. Um, you know, the there's a lot of information to absorb. Um, you know, um, it's not a case where there is no information. That's for sure. There's, there's a lot of information. But um, over time, uh, information gets lost. Um, you know, it's, it's taught us, uh, a lot about, uh, the importance of, there are certain things that when, when somebody goes missing, um, you know, like digital information, um, should be preserved. Um, a lot of stuff gets lost very quickly. So if somebody goes missing and no one knows what's happened for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days out, um, a lot of that stuff is never going to be found again. Oh, man. Um, but not all of it. That's the interesting thing. Um, so, you know, the podcasts um, are, are just in general, our um, interaction with this case, my interaction with this case, it, it was very eye-opening. 
uh, in many different ways. Refresh our memory how and why you got involved. Because again, you and I chatted about this shortly after Elaine disappeared. Yeah. So Elaine's car was found uh, very close to where I live. Okay. And I had run into Neil's wife, Ingrid. Um, you know, we're all good friends. I've known Neil forever. He he did a, a, you know, wrote an article about Incubus for Rolling Stone back in like t- 2003 or something like that and traveled with us for like a, a week or two. Oh, wow. So I got to know him really well at that time and we just remained friends. And um, so Ingrid says, you know, oh, do you hear about this girl who went missing and her car was found, you know, right, right down there on PCH. Um, and, uh, I was just sort of like, no, like what, what, what's happening? Like what happened, you know? And she explained to me. And then I realized also that I had seen this drone search going on right before that. And I was like, Oh, that must've been what I saw. Um, you know, there were search and rescue people and drones and they were, you know, combing the cliff sides and divers in the water. I mean, it was like pretty intense and, um, and so Ingrid told me that she had been talking to somebody, um, on Facebook who was running a Facebook page where people were talking about the case and they, and it was connected with, uh, Elaine's family. And so Ingrid said, I've been talking to them. They're really nice, but they need a lot of help. Maybe we could help them. And I was like, of course, like, you know, would love to be able to be helpful. Like, you know, we know lots of people in Malibu and, um, you know, if there was any way we could help raise awareness or whatever. So the next thing I know, we're all sitting in my living room with, you know, Elaine's mom, uh, Rosemary, who was running the Facebook page, uh, Jaden, who's a private investigator. And all of us were sitting together and, you know, like, you know, Jaden, of course, was like, you know, what the hell do you guys want? You know, like, we're not here to like answer questions about this case. And we were like, no, 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 of course. Like, we just want to help. Like, if there's something you guys need that we can provide, you know, access to, to, you know, like maybe we could raise money, like whatever, like we'll help. Right. Um, cause it was really disconcerting that somebody could just disappear and like, you know, a mile away from where I live, you know, it's just super weird. Malibu, you know, seemed like it should be such a safe place. Um, it was scary that somebody could just go missing like that. And her body has never been found, correct? No, nobody's... And has anyone been arrested even for 24 hours yet? No. No one has been arrested? Nope. Nope. Like I said, um, you know, it's... Over time, it's hard to recover certain um, uh, pieces of information. Um, If somebody does a good enough job of covering up or or distracting or whatever it is, um, information gets lost. Mike, Mike, Mike. Whoever is responsible, one person, two people, three people, whatever, they must be having crazy anxiety that luckily Elaine Park is being talked about and in the podcast to live and die in LA in such a huge way, there's like 60 million downloads. Do you ever feel afraid that whoever is responsible is like F uh, Neil Strauss and Mike Einzinger? I mean, all we're doing is commenting on sort of what we experienced. You know, that's, I mean, and I don't think that that's reason enough not to, like, we want Elaine found. Yeah. That's, that's the moral of it. And, um, you know, we've put in, you know, probably thousands of hours of, of time and, and work, um, hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in expense resources and, and a reward as well. Um, which is up to what? 250 K. And you, yeah, it's 250 grand as a reward for any information leading to, Elaine's whereabouts. Um, You know, you mentioned, you know, whoever was responsible for it, experiencing anxiety or whatever. Um, Sociopaths don't do that. Okay, right. Sure, right. They don't give a fuck. Mm -hmm. You know, they have other motivations for what they do. Um, So uh, that maybe that's the case here. Maybe it's not. I can't tell you today. Um, But... um, you Does know, the police accept any tips you guys get and you say, look, we've gotten these messages. Is it cool if we just tell you some information we have that maybe you don't? Yeah, we've given a lot of information to the police. You have. Okay. You know, they don't necessarily share information with us, but we give them anything that Good. we, anything that's of value to us, we will share with law enforcement, you know, or, um, you know, there's certain things also that we work on. Um, we, we don't share anything that's not factual. You know, that's not um, like speculation in 
in investigations is is kind of uh, sometimes can be a useful thought experiment, but you know, being speculative can really lead you down the wrong path a lot. So, um, so we try and just really stick with uh, what we know and what can be confirmed. Okay. Um, so it, it's it, <laughs> it's it's a fucking crazy story. So after all the information that you have up here, real facts. Is there a suspect in your mind who has not got brought in? Someone that you can definitively definitively say, we think it's he or she, um, him or her. In my own mind, um, I'll just say probably. Um, you know, it's it's something that is a little difficult for me to talk about, but um, there's a lot of there isn't no information. I'll just say that, you know, um, some of these sort of really hard to solve cases are like, no one knows anything. Um, this isn't one of them. This is a, a, a case that can be solved. Um, it's just a matter of time. I think. Okay. My fingers are crossed that somebody is arrested for the, for, for Elaine part. I, mean, I think, I think that, you know, Elaine's brother, Dustin, yeah. um, is like just a really, really sweet human being. And, um, you know, I care about him a lot and, um, he, he's been through a lot and, um, I think he deserves to know the truth, you know? All right. Um, I hope, so I hope it's found. I hope the truth is found soon. Mike. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. It's, uh, definitely a journey. That's for sure. Um, again, that podcast is called To Live and Die in L.A. That's some serious stuff. This one's called Tuna on Toast. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mike, Incubus is about to hit the road. Innings Festival. There's going to be a couple of shows in Vegas, which... That's right. There's like 82% chance I'm going to be at one of those. Whichever one you want, man. Okay, I appreciate that. And I appreciate the relationship over so many years, man. Thank you for allowing me into your world for over this time, and it's been... So fun to watch all your success. Oh, thank you. And thank you for, you know, helping to give us a platform, uh, you know, in the early days of Incubus, you know, to, to, to have something to talk about, you know, decades later, you yeah, know, so the, the appreciation goes both ways. Thank that's you, for Mike. sure. Thank you so yeah, much. Man. All right. The guy is a genius. The guy is friendly. He is successful. He is Mike Einziger. And I am Ted Stryker. And that has been our show. Thank you so much for watching. Happy snuggles. Bye-bye. Thanks, dude. That's another episode of Stryker's Tuna on Toast. Promise it'll get better. Most likely. For sure. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs>